Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 166, recorded on December 6th, 2020. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. Let's do the news. And let's start with the many Linux desktop environments that saw updates this week. Right, one of them was Budgie. Budgie 10.52 is here. Lots of changes and improvements. It's more than a year of work that's went into this release. Uh, but I think probably the most notable thing is they've based it on the latest GNOME 338 stack now. But there are many improvements and fixes for you Budgie users out there. So we do have a link to the announcements page in our show notes. Next on the list, the KDE project released KDE Plasma 5.20.4. It's the fourth maintenance update to the Plasma 5.20 series with another batch of bug fixes and improvements. Included amongst those fixes, the audio volume applet no longer displays an unknown and non-functional device with the text, device name, not found. I do like those nice quality of life fixes. Uh, 5.20.4 also is seeing some improvements for the Wayland session land, including some title bar, title bar context menu fixes, um, a bug that would make apps crash when trying to view font-related items. All of that has been fixed up, and I'm happy to report I went ahead and did the upgrade this morning before the show. I figured, let's try it live, and uh, upgraded, and everything went just fine. In fact, like a lot of my experiences with Plasma updates, it just chugs right along. You know, I've occasionally had a few new bugs introduced, but they're always fixed by the next update. Yeah, sometimes some do sneak in some regressions, but they are really good and about fixing it. And the trend line, I think, has been has been generally positive, like it has with the GNOME desktop recently. And this week saw GNOME 3.3.8.2 come out, which is second of many to come point releases for the GNOME 3.3.8 desktop. I think what's also notable in this is they've done some work to make their own GNOME OS project more accessible for developers and users who want to test upcoming features in the desktop environment, sort of a blessed GNOME environment for you to get to work on. But I thought also worth mentioning here is this is it for GNOME in 2020. They have a planned point release for the 3.3.8 desktop environment in early January, along with the alpha release of the upcoming GNOME 40 desktop series. There's a lot going on in that desktop series, version 40, and uh, we've been discussing it and digging in in Linux Unplugged. So if you're curious, check out our coverage on GNOME 40 in Linux Unplugged. Elsewhere in the GTK universe, and after more than six months in development, Cinnamon 4.8 is finally here. And actually, it's already made an appearance in the software repositories of Arch. The biggest new feature in Cinnamon 4.8 is a new suspend then hibernate function that instructs the desktop environment to first suspend the system and then hibernate after a certain time period of inactivity. Another important change in Cinnamon 4.8 can be found under the hood, as the Cinnamon JavaScript interpreter now uses Mozilla's newer Mose.js 78 JavaScript engine. This makes Cinnamon startup much faster and should be easier to maintain by other GNU Linux distributions outside of Linux Mint. Now, speaking of Linux Mint, Cinnamon 4.8 will be the default desktop environment of the upcoming Linux Mint 21, which will be based on Ubuntu 2004.1 and expected to arrive sometime near Christmas. Well, speaking of Christmas, I think the Raspberry Pi is going to make a very tempting holiday gift, and it just got a little bit better, keeping with tradition they have some year-of-end updates, including a brand new release of Raspberry Pi OS. They've updated the Chromium browser to version 84, but as they note, it did take a bit longer than they would have hoped. 
it's always quite a lot of work to get video hardware acceleration integrated with a new release of the browser. And yeah, I can appreciate that. Nice to see it, though. Nice to see it. It makes a big difference on that scale of hardware. Another thing that's just kind of finely, but uh, nice to see as well, is Raspberry Pi OS is switching to Pulse Audio. Yes, Pulse Audio, the sound server. The, the new modern <laughs> setup, yeah. Yeah, not PipeWire, no, no. Uh, they're switching out from Alsa, and they note in their uh, announcement about this that Alsa had some limitations. It could only handle one input and output at a time. It didn't handle Bluetooth audio at all. And it is an example of why I think Raspberry Pi OS is great for some. For those of us who've been using Linux for a while, it's just a little too eclectic. It's a little too esoteric still. And and the fact that they're just now switching to Pulse Audio when Pipewire is nearly here is an example of why I kind of often will skew to using things like Ubuntu or Manjaro on my Raspberry Pis. Yeah, I don't think they were planning for someone like you who uh, abuses their platform a little too far. <laughs> I do push it to the limit sometimes. Um, but there is some improvements to accessibility in this release, and that's actually something they've been working on throughout this year. Oka Screen Reader is in there at the start of the year, and then over the summer they put in a display magnifier for folks who have limited visibility. And, you know, I knock on Raspberry Pi, but it is really nice to see that kind of stuff go in there. And then there are nice customizations that make the quality of life on the Pi a little bit better. In this uh, December release, there's also now a low voltage warning that's been added to the the battery monitoring plugin, easier for me to say, that will warn you if you're not sufficiently supplying voltage. And this is a super common problem with power adapters in the Raspberry Pi. People don't quite get something that supplies enough power or you're powering a USB disc off of the USB bus, which draws a lot of power. And when you're right on that, right on that line, it's nice to have something that will warn you. So they've added that in there. Uh, Also just notable for those of you who are going to be running this, it is now also based on Linux kernel 5.4.79. So if you're thinking about getting somebody a Pi 400 for the holidays, Wes, just got a little bit better. Something else for Pi fans to celebrate is that the V3DV driver is now officially Vulkan 1.0 conformant for supporting things like high-performance graphics and compute atop the Raspberry Pi 4 and newer. If you're not familiar, V3DV is the modern Vulkan driver for current Broadcom SOCs, catering to the Raspberry Pi 4 and presumably some future chips as well. Yeah, it's big to get Vulkan on there, but also they're working on native Wayland support. An independent contributor has worked on the Wayland system integration for V3DV and went through the steps to get it merged into mainline Mesa. So we're going to have this in Mesa 21.0, which is due out next quarter. That's This is a huge milestone for the Raspberry Pi and out-of-the-box general Linux distribution graphics support. And we've been waiting for quite a while to see this, and now we're getting everything we'd, we'd hope to see. So you know, it'll take a little while for it to trickle down to everybody because you're going to have to get newer kernels, newer Mesa. You're going to have to get some of the latest Vulkan updates. But eventually it'll be to the point where this stuff just comes shipped in every distribution, making the Raspberry Pi closer to a just general computer that you can put a Linux distro on. Well, I guess I know what I'll be putting in your stocking this Christmas. Linode.com slash LAN. Linode is the largest independent cloud. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with our cloud hosting provider. They are the back end for Jupyter Broadcasting 3.0. Been using them for a little while now. And they're fast machines with native SSD storage, 40 gigabit connections, and a really easy to use 
Cloud Manager. But what's also great is Linode is local. You know what I mean? They're a supporter of the Linux community. They were independently owned and founded on a love for the technology that was coming in the Linux kernel. And then they've stepped up over the years by supporting open source initiatives. They've been part of the Kubuntu project. They've been part of all things open. And of course, our beloved Linux Fest Northwest. And now here they are supporting independent media, making it possible for us to give our independent content away for free to our audience. Linode is dedicated to offering the best virtualized cloud computing. If it runs on Linux, it'll run on Linode. I'll also recommend you check out their S3-compatible object storage, which is proven, it's stable, and it's inexpensive technology. It really makes it ideal for archives or, or backup sets or a static website, maybe assets like images or soundboard clips, which we use here to just embed the soundboard clips right into our show notes. Object storage is great, too, because it doesn't require a server sitting in front of it, so it's extremely economical. They have all kinds of great features at Linode, from node balancers to systems with GPUs or dedicated CPUs, and they start at just $5 a month. So if you go to linode.com LAN, you'll get a $100 60-day credit on a new account. And with their price structure, you can build a lot of system with that $100 credit. See what we've been talking about, because Linode costs 30 to 50% less than major cloud providers like AWS. And they were around three years before AWS. And with 11 data centers worldwide, you're going to find just the right spot to deploy. So to go to linode.com slash LAN to get started, get that $100 60-day credit. That's linode.com slash LAN. And thank you to everyone who supports these shows by by supporting our sponsors, by taking advantage of these offerings. We really appreciate it. And and thanks to Linode for making it possible for independent media to give their content away for free. Linode.com slash LAN. With SUSE's acquisition of Rancher Labs finalizing this week, we thought we'd add some context to what could be a significant story. Recent data from DICE's 2020 Tech Job Report found there's been an 82% increase in job demand for individuals with Kubernetes skills over the past year alone. DICE predicts that the demand for Kubernetes skills will continue to grow and enjoy a projected growth rate of more than 67% over the next 10 years. Yeah, you can see how this is becoming a pretty important segment of the tech industry. And Rancher quickly became a player in that space of some significance. Here's a little background on them. They were widely, or I guess they still are, widely known as one of the main innovators in Kubernetes. I think one of their key value adds is the ability to manage different deployments at different scales across different providers. That's one of the things Rancher is known for is handling those operational and security challenges of managing multiple Kubernetes clusters. Specifically, it supports any cloud-native computing foundation-certified Kubernetes distribution. So that includes the ones from Google, Amazon, and Microsoft. And that's really nice because cloud lock-in is often a pain point for many enterprises. Now, Rancher Labs was funded with $10 million in 2015. And then $20 million in 2016 and $40 million in 2020. In May of 2020, they launched rancher academy and then in april of this year rancher labs released an update to their management platform that made it easier to upgrade without particular kinds of downtime in addition to simplifying remote access and it was around this time it was estimated that rancher had thirty-seven thousand active users and 100 million downloads of its flagship software now mind you some of those thirty-seven thousand active users would be inside very large enterprises with 
massive deployments. Oh, yeah. And then, in July 2020, Rancher announced its definitive agreement to be acquired by SUSE. That deal closed this week. When the acquisition was originally announced, Rancher Labs was quick to point out that they intend to remain an open-source first company. Adrian Goins is in charge of Rancher Labs' community, and he made this note on YouTube when the news came out. There aren't very many companies who hold a true open-source ethos at their core. Even fewer companies hold true to that mission as they grow. Rancher always has, and that's why we are so excited to be joining forces with SUSE. The acquisition, upon closure, will establish SUSE and Rancher as the open-source innovator of choice for Kubernetes, enterprise Linux, edge computing, and AI. We'll certainly be able to see that influence because after the deal, Rancher's CEO and co-founder, Shen Liang, will be president of engineering and innovation at SUSE in charge of all of their engineers. Terms of the deal were not publicly disclosed, but a CNBC report published after the initial announcement quoted sources familiar with the deal, the saying that SUSE is paying between $600 and $700 million. Hmm. This acquisition is SUSE's first step to expanding, really, since EQT bought SUSE from Microfocus and freed it with the sole mission of growth in yeah. March 2019. Yeah. Right, right. Yes, EQT is still involved there, but this really follows something that we've reported on recently, which is strong fiscal momentum and performance by SUSE. In the second quarter of fiscal 2020, they saw bookings increase 30% year over year, while global cloud revenue was up 70% year over year. So they're leveraging that recent success to make a purchase that I think, at least in my opinion, Wes, makes them a lot more relevant, a lot faster all of a sudden in big cloud computing. It was something that we'd sometimes remark that SUSE had seemed like they kind of missed the boat where Ubuntu and and Red Hat had really been very successful. SUSE was sort of in a distant third place. But with this acquisition, it seems like they just fast forwarded a few years. I know you've had some hands-on experience with this in the past. Do you think this is a winner? Yeah, you know, Rancher enjoys a, a good amount of popularity and goodwill in the Kubernetes community, right? They make some really handy tools that a lot of people adopt. And I think as you touched on earlier, they're easy to get started with, right? If you already have some clusters provisioned wherever, you've got one on-premises maybe, well, you can bring them all under one roof with Rancher quite easily. You don't have to go, say, adopt the whole Red Hat OpenShift workflow just to start playing with it and figure things out. Right. It sounds like, to my understanding, Rancher can, the the tools, you can run Rancher OS, or you could actually run some of the tools on a distribution of your choice. And that it seems to be something they intend on keeping Uh, And I can see people liking that because you have multi-cloud support, you have multi-distro support. It really kind of gets around that lock-in issue. Right. You've got two companies joined into one with a long experience in open source and supporting things like Linux, especially at SUSE. So they've kind of just said, hey, look, we also do Kubernetes now. Yeah. the, The other thing about this that strikes me is SUSE, much like Red Hat, is a traditional sales channel company. They work in the sales world of enterprise. It's, it is their meat and potatoes. Uh, it's, some, it's an area where they're really competitive, and now they have a very competitive management solution as well that, that has some, some good buzz. Seems like they got pretty savvy over there at SUSE. And, you know, this is in the shadow of those recent rumors of them coming out with an IPO as well. And if they do... This just made that IPO look a lot more attractive because now they have a really modern cloud offering, which, of course, the market always likes to see. As many times as you can say cloud or Kubernetes, uh, all the better. 
linux.ting.com. Ting Mobile is a smarter choice for everyone now. It's the next generation of Ting Mobile. It's here, and you should go see how much you can save. And you get $25 off when you go to linux.ting.com. You can get talk and text for just 10 bucks a month and data plans starting at 15 and unlimited from $45. Yeah, I said the word unlimited. And if you use 2 or 20 gigs a month, there's a perfect Ting plan for you and the family. And no need to worry. The only thing that's changed is a lower monthly phone bill. You still get access to Ting's award-winning customer service with nationwide LTE and 5G coverage and no contracts ever. And Ting Mobile customers can now choose from three different plans just based on your data needs. It's really simple to switch to Ting, and pretty much any phone is going to work on Ting. So just go to linux.ting.com. Check out your current phone. Create an account. Pick the plan that's right for you. When everything all lines up, Ting will send you a SIM card that you pop in your phone and you activate in minutes. I've been a Ting customer for probably seven years, six years. It's been a long time. And they've been great. And now it's the next generation of Ting. It's here and you should see how much you can save and get 25 bucks off by going to linux.ting.com. No contracts. You pick the plan that works just right for you. And you can probably bring a phone in. If you want to get a new phone, there's a lot of great phones you can get from Ting directly or, or grab however you like to get them and bring them. Thank you to everyone who takes advantage of our sponsor's offer and supports the show. And thanks to Ting for making it possible for this here independent podcast to be free to our listeners. Michael Larable founded Pharonix in 2004, now the largest open source news and Linux hardware review site. He also created the Pharonix Test Suite, a very impressive benchmarking tool that we use over on Linux Unplugged all the time. To say he knows a few things about Linux hardware is putting it lightly. Michael joined me earlier this week to discuss the state of Linux hardware support in 2020. And well, I had to start by asking him if he thinks it's a long shot to get Linux on the Apple M1 up and running. Well, I'm optimistic about, uh, in particular, the one Patreon campaign happening right now by Hector. I'd view it as a long shot, at least in terms of being able to have any production quality support with working graphics in particular being the one area that will be the biggest uphill battle for bringing up Linux on the M1 for any of those devices. Right. Yeah. I look at the devices that we have had documentation and more access to, and it's been an uphill battle just to get those working. Exactly. If you look at even just the AMD and Intel laptops on the market these days and try to load Linux on there, there's still various quirks to work through from power power management, especially. Um, and then obviously some laptops with keyboards or wireless still causing issues. And then, yes, um, certainly even in cases of uh, open source graphics, like with NVIDIA, for instance, where there have been um, the Nuovo developers for years working on the support, but they end up being handicapped by firmware and documentation. And so all these years later, the open source NVIDIA driver performance for most of the GPUs out there is very poor. And I imagine that the M1 graphics are going to be in a very similar situation where uh, it'll take basically years and may it may or may not be performant. And then the other obstacles like reverse engineering the M1 graphics will have to be done on Mac OS. And that's moving, moving increasingly towards the metal API. And so it's going to be harder for them to basically debug and reverse engineer engineer and replay all the shaders from Mac on Linux and basically mm. a lot more obstacles compared to what the Novo developers or even Panfrost with the Armali graphics, uh, Freedreno for the Qualcomm Adreno. 
at least there they have a Linux driver currently or um, a kernel driver from Android and they may be able to build it and start sending in commands and trying to figure out how things work on Linux and slowly rewrite either their shader compiler and then bring up their OpenGL and Vulkan drivers. But with the Apple M1, you really don't have a good starting point on Linux unless Apple were to release a Linux driver that's closed source, but I don't envision them release releasing any such driver and they don't have a reason to really. Right. I guess are prospects better for just competitive ARM that will work better with Linux? How's that looking from a hardware perspective? Um, certainly, I would say very good over the next year. We should see more uh, single board computers come to market that will hopefully have the Neoverse N1 or X1 um, processor cores. And then there's already the announced N2 and other iterations coming from ARM that are certainly looking very promising. So at a minimum, I would say that this Apple M1 effort would take at least a year to bring up to get into some level of usefulness for end users. And yeah, over the course of that same amount of time, we're likely to see much more competitive ARM hardware out there, which will hopefully be using ARM Ali graphics where you may be able to then make use of the existing PanFrost driver. And there's at least some level of Linux support there thanks to um, the various Android devices, et cetera. Um, right. So there is much better prospect than hoping to get a very custom Apple M1 chip brought up under Linux. Well, one topic that we follow on this show a lot, and I know you followed as well, is RISC-V. You think uh, this improves prospects or changes the game at all for RISC-V? I wouldn't say so, at least in the near term. Um, RISC-V is doing some excellent things, particularly with Sci-Fi. Uh, and their recently announced developer board that will now be available at a lower cost that should really help boost the open source and ecosystem support around there. Now that more developers will be able to um, handle the cost of that board and um, start pr providing Linux build systems around there and basically porting more software over there. Let's talk a little bit more about bigger hardware and Linux. Um, seems like it's been a pretty good year for AMD on Linux. Oh, it certainly has. AMD's uh, recent Ryzen 5000 or Zen 3 processor launch has been outright terrific. 20% um, plus generational improvements, generally speaking, in nearly all the workloads, including uh, single-threaded. Um, I've been super happy with the Zen 3 support on Linux. There hasn't been any issues compared to, say, Zen 1 or Zen 2, where there was that RD RAND um, instruction issue that was causing boot time problems or originally with Zen 1 where there was the issue on a performance marginality problem, I believe they had described it as, uh, where there was a Linux performance issue that was rather peculiar. And with not uh, without any new chipsets being introduced for the Zen 3 launch, everything there from the motherboard perspective is quite mature and stable. So you can pretty much load up a modern Linux distribution and have it run great with yeah. Ryzen 5000. And then... In early 2021, there's already going to be the Ryzen 5000 mobile series that will also should be very nice. Oh, I already want it. <laughs> <laughs> Same here. <laughs> you know, okay, so I, it's been a little bit more of an interesting story, wouldn't you say, on the NVIDIA side? They had the GPL condom issue. Um, the driver story isn't quite the same. What are your thoughts with NVIDIA and Linux for 2020? Uh, it's been an interesting year for sure. At least they continue to have same-day Linux driver support that generally just works without issues. And you can rely on them, and there's really no iffy bring-up issues or anything under Linux for that proprietary driver. The RTX 30 series performs great on Linux. 
pretty much at feature parity to Windows, especially now that uh, the Kronos Group has ratified the Vulkan uh, ray tracing extension. So um, there's that. So the ray tracing will hopefully come to Linux in some form uh, in terms of games or Steam Play and Proton for um, a compatibility porting of the DirectX 12 uh, DXR to Vulkan. Um, so from the proprietary driver side, everything is great and remains great with NVIDIA. Um, the open source side, though, is where it's still disappointing. The Novo developers have been spending years slowly um, working on things. Red Hat, though, has been investing still in the driver, which is a bit surprising. Um, they've been investing a lot in the OpenCL uh, compute support and uh, Spear V to, um, for compute as well, while at the same time, the performance is quite poor. So there's ultimately some sort of backroom deal that Red Hat is engaging with NVIDIA in terms of improving this open source driver stack. And there was an announcement for GTC earlier this year that was delayed in terms of some open source driver announcement. So I believe they are collaborating over some hopeful improvement, which would likely be either increased documentation and or providing more open firmware so that these modern GPUs can perform well on the open source driver. Sure. But at this point, it's really up in the air and just speculating on what it could be. But given that Red Hat for year, years now has been investing and continues to have full-time developers working on the driver, there has to be some sort of plan at play. So before we go, let me ask you about what you're watching for 2021. It sounds like I got a hint earlier, but what else are you keeping an eye out for? Um, Certainly it'll be fun to see what exactly happens with Linux on the M1. Um, it's going to be a lengthy bring-up process should it all pan out. I wouldn't be surprised if in even weeks they might manage to get Linux to boot on the M1. But in terms of it being a polished experience, especially on the graphics side, it's a very long process. Um, I'd see more success there in getting Linux virtualized on macOS. And there you won't have to worry about power management and all the other peculiarities. On the software side, Intel continues to... Uh, do interesting uh, investments in Linux performance with clear Linux, but that's sort of been going downhill recently since they divested in their desktop focus earlier this year. And there really hasn't been too much out yeah. of Intel on clear quiet. Linux yeah, in the past several months. So we'll see what happens there. Um, but at least in general, Intel is still doing a lot of interesting Linux work. They remain one of the largest contributors to the Linux kernel uh, and bringing up their hardware functionally to ensure that it performs well on Linux at time of launch and is in release distributions, etc. Ubuntu's been doing fairly well these days um, with a lot of upstream improvements to GNOME and other components. And so overall, it's going to be a very interesting uh, 2021 for a variety of reasons, um, both on the hardware and software side. And I don't really see any major challenges. Um, I think it's going to be a fascinating hardware year, maybe one of our better ones yet. And I thought 2020 was pretty good. Uh, yeah, certainly so. And then um, just for instance, uh, yeah, more ARM hardware. Currently, I'm testing the Ampere Ultra, which is an ARM V8 server with they're making use of the Neoverse N1 uh, design. And that performance has actually been phenomenal. It's arguably even more impressive than the M1, albeit in the server space. I'll have benchmarks there in the coming weeks. But basically, in a number of workloads, the Ampere Ultra can actually take on Intel's top-end 8280 Platinum. In the really? TP configuration as well how, as... How many cores, how many ARM cores are we talking here? 
80 cores per socket. And so if you go with the, <laughs> and, and that's physical cores, there's no uh, hyper-threading SMT uh, involved. So with a dual socket server like Mount Jade, you have 160 cores and it's quite- I'm glad to hear that can take on the M1. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, even there though, it does show that there are more um, improvements to be made on the Linux software stack. There's still plenty of Linux software out there that really isn't optimized for ARM V8. Sure, it can build, but there's plenty of software not making use of ARM SIMD extensions with Neon or just well-tuned for ARM. So hopefully that will be an area that will improve upon in 2021. Yeah, I'll be watching. And actually, I'm sure you will be too. And we'll be watching Pharonics for the coverage. So thank you for the great work and keep it up. <laughs> thank you. It's been a pleasure. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. But check out linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And we love that feedback, linuxactionnews.com slash contact for all the ways to get in touch. And speaking of porting Linux to the M1, Hector Martin is scheduled to join us on this Tuesday's Linux Unplugged. So do check that out. As for this show, we'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, and we'll see you next week.